Well, it's my pleasure to welcome you back to In Retrospect. This is episode 41, The Art of Dying, an interview with Rita Wright. In Retrospect is my way of looking at life's lessons in hindsight. I'm Kendall Thurman, and thanks for joining me. Folklore tells us that cats will stand on your chest and suck your soul right out of your mouth. That bear did charge me. She was six inches from my feet. I can do whatever. I can do anything because I was made to do anything. Turn around and there's a um, barrel, the gun's at my forehead now, and I can see the bullets in the chamber. In the end, it'll be okay, and if it's not okay, it's not the end. If you all want to come park my car, me and my kids will honk your horns for you. When he told me I could fly and I jumped off my roof. Pilot was sort of a cowboy guy, jumped out and he was like, whoa, man, did you see those rockets shoot at us? And the mom and dad are crying and they come over to me and the mom hugs me and she says, that's the first time my little boy's ever said a word in his life. Good morning. Welcome into the Yorkshire studio, Rita Wright. Hello. Hi. Thanks for joining me. Yes, this is a fun thing to do. We met... Ten minutes ago. Yes. So thanks for braving the uh, possibility of coming here, not knowing who I was and what you were getting into. Well. You kind of knew a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. So we'll take a minute to uh, remind our listeners, if this is your first time joining In Retrospect, thanks for taking the time to listen. And also go back and listen to some of the old episodes that were highlighted in the intro music and also to do the R squared, S squared, the rating, reviews, share, and subscribe. You can see pictures of our guests on inretrospectpodcast.blogspot.com or looking at In Retrospect Podcast on Facebook or Instagram. So I need to do something official here. There. On air. <laughs> on air. That was a, my brother Kevin gave me that. So <laughs> we are officially on the air now. So... Rita Wright is joining me today in the studio and the Yorkshire studio. She was born in Salt Lake. She has five children, eight plus one more on the way, grandchild coming. Exciting. She uh, graduated from BYU with a bachelor's in theater and film and a master's in humanity. She has a PhD in European history, Roman and art history. Is that just one combined PhD? They're minor fields. Oh, goodness. Wow. And... She currently works as the museum director of Springville Museum of Art. She's lived in Utah, California, London, and England. So welcome, Rita, again. Um, I So just the background for why I called Rita. So Braden, our artist's son, went to the Ars Moriendi. Is that how you'd say it? Mm-hmm. The exhibit at the Springville Museum of Art, which is an incredible museum. I've been there for a wedding reception and just beautiful. And Springville, I guess, is known as, what's it called? The Art City? or what's Art it called? City. Yep. So a lot of art going down there. And he brought back this pamphlet that I'm holding here. And I'm going to read some parts of it here. But it was such a beautiful pamphlet on the art and death of dying. But it wasn't just about art. It was about death itself and there were some really beautiful things that were written here who 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 wrote this who put this together 
This is my staff, my amazing staff. We make assignments out and uh, ask them to study the material. And then several of them are assigned to write the labels, to do the contextual information. And then we get together and huddle and go through it. So it's, a, it's really a collaboration yeah. amongst all the staff members. That's fun. So we're going to start off the podcast like we normally do, which is with a short segment here. The Wheel of Wonder. Okay, Rita, let's start off with that wonderful contraption you have there. Okay, got it. Which you're in the art field and... Are you amazed by the art quality of that? The art quality is unbelievable. It's a mixed media work, and you've just done a fine job. <laughs> Thank you. It's the Wheel of Wonder, and it gets it kicks us off here. So with the flick of your finger, would you mind just sending that arrow spinning? What number? One. We're at number one. Roman okay. numeral one. Okay, so this is Would You Rather. Thank you. And you can gently place the Wheel of Wonder down. It's very fragile. So we'll start off with a would you rather. Okay. Okay. Would you rather be able to do any type of art, any medium at all, to the perfect ability that you want to do, putting exactly what's in your head onto whatever? Would you rather be able to speak fluent um, any language in the world or play any musical instrument? as fluently as clapping your hands? I'd probably... And why? Rather, oh, the why part. Uh, I am not actually a practicing artist, but if I were to do that, that would be up there, being able to create and do. I love doing home decorating, design kinds of things, but I think I would love to speak another language fluently. Uh, I uh, uh-huh. used to speak French fluently, and there was such an exhilarating feeling about being able to communicate people with people in a different way. Uh-huh. And I was, one time I had mentioned on there, I was kind of stuck in France alone, and the ability to reach out to feel safe and secure because I had a command of the language. I've lost that. I would love to be able to speak Italian fluently Uh and go back kind of to a land I just discovered I have DNA heritage in. Oh, okay. So um, I am with you. I think of all those three, I would choose language also. Just the ability to, when when I'm with someone like in the ER and they speak Arabic, and I know a few phrases in Arabic or whatever it might be, and there's just this pain inside of me. Like, it's like I want to, like, speak, because I speak Spanish. I want to just, I, and it's frustrating to not be able to do that. So yeah. I think I would choose the same thing as you. Yeah, especially like that, words of comfort. I've noticed those are times when someone is lost, even just getting onto the tube in London, a lot of Arabic speakers, a lot of different speakers. Um, imagine something like yours where someone's injured you want to be able to speak those cooing sounds that they may have first heard as a child. How did you get to speak French fluently? Uh, lots of years, starting with sixth grade every day. It used to be back when you had classes every day. I went all through junior high, high school, college, 
speaking French, but the real test was getting to France and speaking French. And uh, that was one of the more challenging things. Mm. I was asked to not speak English when visiting a friend's family because her mother knew no English. And uh, that was really the test. You can do it academically, sure. but when you're on the ground, it's sure. a very different thing. What took you to France? Visiting this friend. I was living in London, and this had been a uh, foreign exchange student I had taken when she was 16. She came and stayed with me and my all my little kids. Uh. And then over the years, every Christmas, we sent goodies back and forth. Then her brother came to San Diego, where I was living at the time. He stayed with us. And uh, now her daughter has since come to stay with me. And this summer, she's trying to find a place for her youngest daughter to mm. come stay. So it's been this ongoing relationship yeah. with a family, huh. real people. Yeah, that's fun. So what did you dream of doing when you were younger? Well, um, my yeah. first memory, uh, as, as I recall in any significant way, was my third birthday party and I got swings. And I remember I loved that feeling of being way up high. And the the main idea in my mind was to swing so high that I could actually flip over the top of the swing mm-hmm. set. But I loved being up in the air and kind of that free fall feeling when you come back down. Mm-hmm. So you wanted to join the circus or... <laughs> I just think I just wanted to, in the old term of the world, yeah, I kind of wanted to have restrictions lifted, more or less. I wanted Uh to be not tied down. Uh Uh-huh. And what did that translate to in your mind that you would do? Well, along with that, that was about the time Barbies came out, so I wanted to be a fashion designer, and I would take my mom's scarves because we could not afford real Barbie clothes. Uh-huh. They were like 7 $8 a piece, uh-huh. imagine. And uh, so I was very interested in art and fashion. Later on, did some modeling, and thought that was not the life I wanted, so mm-hmm. I did a degree in film and theater and kind of thought I would do that professionally. I did not want to be professional actress. I loved being behind the scenes. I loved okay. directing. And what um, what kind of led towards your doing the art world? At the time I was married for 40, I'd been married for 40 years, but at that time my ex-husband was a muralist. And so I decided I needed to go back to school to earn some money And I wanted to learn more and be able to talk to our clients about art and design more clearly. So I went back to school to learn a little bit about art, got waylaid, got into ancient ritual, and then ended up being very fascinated with the way ritual was incorporated or rediscovered through the different art forms in the 19th century. You said your husband was what? He was a muralist. Oh, muralist. He painted, yeah, yes, yes. muralist, yes, yeah. yeah. And so okay. it was kind of exciting, and uh, that had to do with one of, to get back to flying, uh, we were doing a project in California, and I had broken my arm, and the, the president of the bank, whose home we were working on, called and sent his personal jet for us to ride back to Palm Desert, Palm Springs. Okay. And so sure. there I got to be I got to be in a jet and I'd been terrified ever since 
little when I gave up the idea of being able to swing so high. Huh. Terrified to fly because I had a house full of little children. Uh, and, sure. you know, it was sure. scary. But being up in this jet going to do this project in Palm Springs, I got to go into the very front of the jet Ooh. and sit next to the pilot and That's to see cool. the curve of the earth wow. and to feel like there were none of those restrictions. I kind of forgot how difficult life is on earth because it was so beautiful and hmm. to see the horizon was just hmm. a, a mind and life altering experience. Hmm. Okay. Uh, you said that you dreamed of swinging high. Okay, that was, I thought you meant swing, like swing dancing. Swing dancing, no. <laughs> I love dancing. Dance was a minor, and that uh, always, talk about an expressive language of movement. But Can I tell you, so one time we were living in, I was living in Mesa, and my sister Anessa and I, we had a group of friends, and we uh, we were really into the movie uh what was it called? Swing Kids? Swing Kids. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, so there was a swing dance that was announced at a church. So we got all ready. Uh, there was probably eight of us. And we went to this church. Like, this is going to be awesome. And we got there. And no one was under 70 years old. <laughs> <laughs> and we were, this was my senior year of high school. And about three or four of the people said, okay, we're out of here. And they took off. Uh, so we just sat out in the kind of the waiting area of the church and like, should we do this or what should we do? <laughs> so we went back in and we had, that was the, one of the most fun nights I've ever had. Cause it was like four of us and all these people over 70, 75 and, and they just taught us how to swing dance and we just danced with all these people and it was so much fun. So very was, cool. Yeah. I, was looking on Facebook last night and saw pictures. My uh, my daughter-in-law is Chilean, and they took pictures of a party, mm. and they always dance. There is such inhibition about, mm. you know, oh, do we have to stand outside? Do we even have to? Yeah. Everything, yeah. just the little kids, everyone starts to dance. And I think that's a really, uh, a really neat cultural way to include music and dance as part of what you do. It's not set over here. It's not on a stage. It's not on a screen. It is around you and mm -hmm. through you. And I was just looking at those pictures last night, I, and I thought, culturally here, I wish we could be a little more open to just going in uh -huh, and dancing. My, uh, that's where I served my church mission was in Chile. Oh, really? So I know what you're talking about. Well, it was kind of fun. I, I'll throw this in because it's kind of tied together with the exhibition. And on the cover of the bro brochure that you mentioned are some ima images from um, a, an artist who uses the Dia de los Muertos kind uh -huh. of images. When I was in Miami, where my daughter lived, and uh, it was they were doing trunk or treat. And for all the kids, and of course, it's a big, it's an area, a lot of Latino families and even over. at, yeah. yeah, and the LDS church house. And this monsoon, as it does in Miami, came up. And so they all had to take their Halloween decorations, move inside the church. 
And I remember my son-in-law being a little caught off guard with these great big... uh, Skulls. uh, Yeah, uh, you know, images, death and dying there in the LDS ward house. But again, everybody got in there. It didn't matter. They were wet. Somebody just turned on music. Somebody started dancing. And nobody cared. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's get into that because that leads, that's a good segue into why I wanted to... I'm going to read a couple things from this beautiful pamphlet. And is this Latin, Ars Moriendi? Mm-hmm. Is that? Yep, the art of dying. Okay, art of dying. I'm going to read a couple of things that really... So this podcast, I mean, listeners are from every religious or non-religious background and guests also. And... I, the ways that you guys summed up a couple of things in this spoke to me as so cross-cultural messages that I, that's why I wanted to talk to you about this. Because in the ER, I meet um, people who are well-prepared for the process of dying or who don't want to talk about it. And, and the way you summed this up was so beautiful. I'm going to read a couple of these things. So mortality, it says death is an unavoidable part of the cycle of life, yet many of us avoid accepting our own mortality. By coming to terms with the inevitability of death, it can help remind us how precious life is and teach us how to live more f- fully in this life. What, um, th- that's so beautiful. Why, wh- why did you all word it like that? What? I think because of the very reasons you named, we sometimes forget in whatever culture we're living in, immersed in, that there are so many other approaches, so many ways of dealing with issues of grief and death. And since I have been at the museum, we've really wanted to focus on that wide world of different approaches to death, to life, to religion and ritual. I wanted to make that a main aspect of my time at the museum to say that we wanted to regard so many different things. And over the last few years, we've done an invitational like this. We did one that was kind of Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey. Oh, sure. And Uh then we did a Jungian, some of the Jungian archetypes a few years ago. And it's just, there are so many other perspectives and ways of offering insight on those most important aspects of our life. Yeah, because obviously there I guess two in inevitabilities in life and that's birth and death. There's I there may be more, but and birth is usually a very joyous time, exciting, fun. And there's a timeline that the birth usually occurs around death is the different one <laughs> there's no there's no you know nine months uh, um and an expected death date or something and so maybe uh, that is why it's a little more stressful because of the uncertainty of it you know it could be uh now today in your youth it could be a prolonged sort of thing so I just love the way that you you all summed this up. You know, I talked to a 93-year-old a couple of days ago at work, and uh, he was 
very critical and I asked his family has he ever talked about what he would want done or you know uh, if his life was in danger and they said he just will not talk about it he does not want to talk about it and I don't know what it's like to be 93 and have death technically be the likelihood a little bit a lot more likely Mm -hmm. I mean it's one thing to say oh come on you know just deal with it you know or not deal with it but it's a natural part of life but I don't know what it's like when you're theoretically a lot closer to it. Um, but it made me a little sad that he, they, they hadn't taken that opportunity to talk and prepare emotionally for it and kind of accept it, like you guys talked about in here. Well, it was interesting. When we went, uh, and, and I want to give credit to uh, one of our special artists, Chauncey Seacrest, who did a form of this exhibition at the Bountiful Davis Art Center. And I was asked to go up there and and speak a little bit about it. And then we decided we would expand it. It would fit into our, our spiritual religious show as an invitational using some of the art. And it was interesting because at that time, there was a mortician from L.A. who was visiting Utah. And she had written a book on death rituals around the world. Caitlin Doty, she uh, does mortician work. And in combination with seeing Chauncey's exhibition, some very rigorous thought um, processes had gone into that exhibition, considering some of these things. And then hearing her talk about different cultural approaches to death, I actually pulled my daughters aside, and my boys don't really care. They're leaving all to the girls. But I said, here are some of the things that I would like. There, there's such a vast array now of ways to be buried, of options for cremation or green burials, that I said, I, I, want, I want to have something that's very personal to me, not just because it's been something that, and it was interesting, she noted, that in a Utah culture, she had seen very little change in the death rituals, the funerals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she said, as I've been exploring, they've been the same for over 100, 150 years. Where most other cultures, they do have the traditional parts, but they adapt a little more mm-hmm. to the current life. And so I think those attitudes about death and course that was one of hamlet's biggest questions right is how how do we know we're going into this strange country this strange place Mm. and it leaves us a little unsettled Mm. why do you think talking about that with your family members helps you live life more fully uh and help you realize how precious life is and live life more fully you know you talked about that with your kids and some people might like i don't want to talk about that you know why is that a little more liberating why do you think because I get a chance to infuse some joy into the discussion and not just at a time that they are grieving or they're taking care of specific um, things that they need to do, the finances, the money. I want it to be more like a museum opening. I've told them. I said, I don't want the regular church thing and Uh lectures on forever. I want everybody to enjoy the now at this time that I don't know. I have no idea what I will be doing while they're celebrating, uh-huh. but I want it to be like a museum opening, have some hors d'oeuvres and, you know, yeah. a big punch bowl yeah. and dancing. And yeah. 
oh, Queen fun. videos. I that's a that's um I've written down the Queen mm-hmm. videos because that had a really Queen videos like the, the Freddie Mercury the, the group. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because it was a it was a big part of real difficult life lessons learned for mm. me. So I just okay. want to party, and uh, they will, I think, all agree. And it's beautiful. I, it's just I may even ask. I've talked to one of our beautiful ceramicists, uh, ceramists, and told him kind of what I want if I end up getting cremated rather uh-huh. than buried. Uh-huh. So huh. it it may made it feel like a very creative process Instead to have some say. A stressful thing that you don't want to talk about. And yeah, yeah. yeah. My mom and I joke <laughs> my mom and I joke around about um, you know when my mom and I talk about when she will eventually die, she <laughs> she she and I joke about things, you know, and it makes it a little more lighthearted. You yeah, know? and you can feel like you can have a, a true exchange. And I saw, again, on Facebook, I live life through what other people say on Facebook. I think there's some amazing, I do think it's fascinating community, but a friend's father passed away, and he had never been involved with the family. Her mother had remarried, and they had a stepdad that raised them. But it was interesting and very poignant to hear them all reflecting on a dad that through much of their lives they had disregarded, been angry with, and things. And they were able to stop and say, okay, we've got to find some way of dealing with this ourselves. And so I think it is a big process. And how early you start it before you die. I'm a senior citizen, you know, from I've had this last year from my high school, from Skyline, about five or six close friends who have died. And it's a little bit shocking because I don't feel like an old person. But when my father was in the process of dying, he had the most amazing nurse that came to sit by us. And she said to me, kind of what you were saying, she said, you've given birth, right? And you know, there are these stages. I used to be a birthing coach and I would be able to tell you when the transitions were coming and we kind of knew what indicators the body was giving. She said, I really observe that in death, that she said, I want to tell you what to explain as your father's going through these transitions and it was amazing because there were so many similarities it was yeah Yeah. i have a niece who's written a book called birth breath and dying and you think there is such a relationship between the taking on of breath the giving off of breath that's why in so many cultures breathing in egyptian the book of breathings Hmm. what does breath have to do of course now we say breathe deeply i got a text the other day just remember to breathe and all Uh of this and you Uh know and i think it's interesting that there are such powerful connections between death and birth my daughter's getting ready to give birth to a child and we just sat last night and kind of talked about this little person we have not yet seen but the presence is definitely Mm -hmm. there sure and uh, so thinking about death in that context. And sometimes, unfortunately, birth and death are very closely aligned. Sure. And that's sure. when I think the grieving is most intense. The bookends are right next to each other sometimes. Yeah. This is a perfect time to segue to your quiz. Yes. 
Two Minutes of Glory. And this segment is called Two Minutes of Glory. And, and oh here my comes goodness. the snow. Yes. <laughs> I realize, uh, I, so I'm looking over there because normally I have several, um, you see that styrofoam package? Um, yeah. There is a mug that goes with this podcast. And if you win this quiz, you win the mug. I'm on back order of those. <laughs> okay. So I will send you one to your address. If I win the quiz. If you win okay. this quiz. <laughs> And the quiz is that you get 10 of these questions correctly in two minutes. Wow. Hence okay. the auspicious title, Two Minutes of Glory. Great. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm going to begin my timer here, and you can say pass, but we'll come back to it. Okay. And these are movies, uh, figures, paintings, phrases that have to do with death or dying. Wow. Okay. All right. And we're going to start... Right now, this is a Mexican holiday celebrated throughout Mexico or in Latin America. Dia de los Muertos. Correct. This is based on a comic book series. Uh, the gritty drama portrays life in the months and years that follow a zombie apocalypse. Ah, it was on, a it was on AMC, uh, streaming on Netflix, oh, probably. Uh, uh It'll come. Okay, uh, we'll pass yes. and we'll come back. Yeah, Walking you, Dead. Yes, and you can interrupt me anytime. A character known as this causes the victim's death by coming to collect that person's soul. The in, Grim Reaper. In certain cultures. Okay, This. these are the Resurrection Stone, the Invisibility Cloak, and the Elder Wand. In Harry Potter. Yes, and they are called collectively the... The, the, the Death... The Yes. Ah, Hallows, Deathly yes, Hallows. Correct. This, in this movie, Michael Keaton, Gina Davis, and Alec Baldwin all-star. Beetlejuice. Correct. This is an American punk rock band formed in San Francisco in 78. Think deceased assassinated president. Death Cab for Cuties. No. De no. De oh, oh, the dead Kennedys. Correct. This is a 1949 stage play written by Arthur Miller. It won the Pulitzer Prize. Death of a Salesman. Correct. This is a painting where, or the, in this story, uh, a young man lives a reckless life and his painting takes on all Dorian this. Dorian Gray. Picture of Dorian Gray. This is an expression meaning to propel a container used to collect liquids with one's foot. This is an expression of death. Death drop. Death kick. Death. You're going to kick something. Death. Kick. Kick. The, I don't yes, know. Yes, correct. Uh, Dickens says that Scrooge's former partner Marley was dead as a... Doornail. Correct. This is a 1980s music John, movie, John Cusack. I want my $2. I know it. But, I'm, I'm we'll going to pass. This is a recent Disney Pixar uh, film about a boy who travels to the Coco. land. Of the, correct. This is an expression of dying, a noise that a frog would make. Croaked. Correct. And that's your timer. Uh-oh. Time is up. Okay, let's see. You got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Oh! You, you win the mug. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> uh, very good. Uh, here's another one just as a bonus. This is a queen song, Chewing on Dirt. Another one bites the dust. Correct. Uh, we didn't get to that. You like queen, so we had to mention that. You did, you, yeah, you, isn't that you perfect to have you that played it. at your funeral? <laughs> Different interpretation. 
That's fun. Well, congratulations, and I'll get you the mug somehow. We'll do it. I'll, I'll send it down to Springville Museum or to your home, and you'll be the proud owner of it. So congratulations. How does it feel that you won two minutes of glory? Oh, see, I wrote on there I'd never do anything famous. So there you go, my two minutes of glory. <laughs> Okay, well done. Okay. Very good. You've got that over, so now the stressful part of the interview is over. So I am want to know, what what is the word curator? Where does that come from? It comes from the word... Uh, are, you, are, are you the curator? Would you say I, that? I'm the head curator. Yes. And um, I'm really the director. The curator is one who cares for something, like curad band-aids okay. from... Uh, a medical standpoint to heal to care to take care of to uh-huh. heal and then also it's been interesting it is a term that has changed uh it used to just refer like in England they are keepers of the collection of the art or okay. the collection then in the United States we started calling them curators caring for it and now we say anyone that puts things people are curating layout people are curating um programs and events so it's taken on a much broader sense in our our contemporary language which i think is interesting i kind of want to hold on to it for the special thing it means for an art museum but i also love that this means people are creatively bringing together different aspects of something and how does one become a director of Curation. <laughs> a ver- Mine is a very strange path. Of course, there are some that come through art, art history, PhDs. Mm-hmm. There are some uh, directors of museums now who are either MPAs, Masters of Public Administration, oh. recognizing that more and more museums are looked at as business entities. Sure. Uh, so there are lots of roots. That's what I love about it, that each museum, each person in a museum gets to it by different means. And so, of course, I started in theater where I was directing productions. And actually, a museum is like more like a theater production okay. schedule. We have the opening, and it's dead. You know, you have to get dead-ended. You have to get it uh-huh. open. You have to have things hung. It has to look nice. People want to come in and go, wow. You want to uh-huh. make sure that you're engaging them in some kind of critical thought process. Uh-huh. And so my background, I went through uh-huh. theater. actually thought I would, when I went back to school, be teaching at a university. And while I was getting my degree, I needed to work. And a dear friend at the museum said, oh, we're opening a position today. So I went to the BYU Museum of Art, worked there for about 10 years, went up to the LDS Church History Museum in Salt Lake City for a couple of years, and did a different kind of, had more objects, historical objects I did, and then had this great chance to come to Springville, which I just knew to be uh, an exciting, vital place for living artists to show as well as dead artists. A kind of dead artist, you can write all kinds of things about them and you do your history sure. and research. But living artists is a whole new... They are entrepreneurs. You're, help, you're helping them yeah. get their business going. And, and all of that is, you know, now that social media has come around, I mean, that's just a changed whole, whole different... Changed the whole thing, yeah. Yeah. I, I follow them on social media. Sometimes I will see them working on things that end up showing up in one of our juried shows. 
kind mm. of like, yeah, I love process and to see how they start with a blank canvas or different objects huh. and bring them together in their own unique creative way. What is, this is going to be an extremely difficult question for you. What is your favorite piece of art? It's like acting. Yeah, it's your like your movie? chill or your favorite, your favorite child. Let, let's make it easier. What are maybe a, f- a two or three of your like that come right to your mind? One that I've had on my desktop is Frederick Lighton, president of the Royal Academy, a 19th century Victorian artist. His Summer Moon, which is too languishing. How do you spell the last name? Summer Moon. And it it kind of is starting to tie in with some of the feminist critique of being related to the moon. Two women kind of lounging with a beautiful arched opening, pomegranates at their feet, which are signs of fertility, symbols of fertility. Oh, I, I just looked it up here. And uh, yeah, that's one. And then I love... Right here. That's it. Oh, that's a good good color on that. Frederick Lighton. Yeah. 1872. So the window almost looks like they're nesting on the moon. Oh, and sure. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. So, of course, my degree is in 19th century. I got to work at his home in London, and I did not get to see that painting, but recently spoke to the former director of my museum who did, saw it crated up in India, and almost completely mildewed and ruined. When Victorian paintings were seen as garish and awful, a lot of Maharajas were buying them during the imperial period. And it was crated up in a warehouse in India, and the middle of it had molded out. So they're trying to figure if they can save it. But I also, I'm fascinated. Again, the Rosetta Stone, is it a work of art? The Rosetta Stone. Yep, British Museum, and it is how they broke the hieroglyphic code. So it was a mystery piece that no one had been able to uh, translate Egyptian hieroglyphs. And this particular stone, when Napoleon's men found it, this particular stone had the same text in three different languages, the hieroglyphs, the Greek, and the Demotic, which was a more contemporary Egyptian. And because they knew two of the languages, they were able to finally break the code of ancient hieroglyphs. So we get all of that study. And I think it's a very magical piece. Okay. And then, now you can tell I'm teaching the first half of art history this semester. But I was stunned by the feeling I had at Stonehenge. I expected Stonehenge to be this overpowering, large, all these megaliths that I had read that could not be moved, that were in myth. Supposedly Merlin had them brought, which date-wise does not coincide. Sure. But what amazed me was when I was standing as close as they let regular visitors get I felt it was very intimate. I felt like I was standing in a place that was connecting me to the stars and the heavens. It was like being in a church that didn't have a rooftop. Instead of painting stars on the ceiling like medieval and Renaissance artists did, you actually had stars for the ceiling of that sacred place. And I just, I felt embraced by it i loved Hmm. it i loved the strength kind of here we talk about the strength of the mountains around us in utah 
I loved the strength and the mystery of how did they move those stones, but I loved that it was created to connect somehow to the cosmos, whether a place of healing, um, the newest critiques is that people would go there for healing and what we're learning about energy and, and, um, just the, the spots on the earth. I think it's a, a very, uh, sensitive place. I loved it. When Mary and I went to Paris, we went to the Louvre and, uh, Mary and, um, my sister's husband at the time, they just took off. We all, the four of us, we were there, the four of us, and they took off because they wanted to say that they had seen everything in the Louvre. We were there for one day. And my sister... <laughs> Bad idea, number one. My sister Meg and I, we just w- went as slow as snails through each. I mean, we, I don't know how much we saw, hardly anything. But to me, it was, it was... um unbelievable a little bit mind bending a little bit that here i'm looking at this original (laughs) you know i'm not looking at a print of this i'm looking at the original and um i also like i haven't been to a ton of museums compared to you but the chicago uh institute Institute of art is beautiful so there's uh, art has always moved me also and um not every piece but uh yeah, there's and my son's an artist. I wish I could. I'll, we'll show you some of his things afterwards. But um, you know the importance of art, you know, in balance with science or sports or you know things like that. Why is an art education so? Why is that so important to us? Oh, you're asking me as I'm ready to go up to the legislature to to make that case. There is power in an original, whether we understand it in some kind of metaphysical way, as its spirit, its life, life, if there is something um, that connects us. But with an original work of art, you have that energy of the original artist, of people that have owned it, of people that have looked at it and had some kind of meaningful engagement. I believe there's a real kind of phenomenology or a sense of presence uh, I did a show one time of some works by a Danish artist named Karl Block, and his works had been in literature, in books, in, you know, films and things. People were familiar, but our catch line was now, you've seen it in print, see the real thing. And as I watched people have those encounters with these beautiful, well-done oh, yeah, works. his pieces. Yeah, and yeah. it was just, it was fabulous, and I, that is why... I think museums are so important. Interesting you brought up the Louvre because I've learned that I go with a few things in mind that I want to see. I do my homework before I go to that museum or the British Museum, these very large um, kind of universal collections because I want to be able to have them in it to not feel like it's how many things I saw because I would forget them. There's actually a syndrome of seeing too much art at once. And I will pick out a few things to take some time to sit and ponder. There is a place, and I always hate when I share it because it will no longer be as Uh, quiet and private, uh but in the Medici Riccardi Chapel in Florence, it's not the Sistine Chapel. It's a private chapel um, of one of the Medici family members, but you go in this chapel 
It's not very big. It's in the palace, maybe twice the size of the room we are in now. And I've the only time I've been in there with other people are when I go with take someone with me. And I told a friend the other night, we're going to Florence this fall. And I said, I want you to go here because you go in, you're able to be right up close to this beautiful Renaissance art. It's the Magi. It's the by a fellow named Gazzoli, and it's the the train of the Magi, where one of the Medici family members um, play is is the role. Lorenzo is one of the Magi, and you can see the gold, you can see the craftsmanship. Nobody else is there chattering, so you can just stand in that gallery. Yeah, and it's all around you. Uh, he's got the images there, and you hmm. are immersed in this smaller version that definitely, to me, has the power of assisting. It's not, you know, it's mm-hmm. uh, not size-wise, but the intimacy of it, and to be able to see the workmanship, the gold, is really a pretty hmm. powerful experiential kind of thing. What were you doing in London, and how long did you live there? In London, I had a group of students. We were doing study abroad, so we were there about five and a half months. Mm-hmm. And... It's great because, again, you have lots of time after classes are due midday or done. You can go out and wander. You don't have to say, oh, I have to see all of the British Museum. Oh, I'll go back in a few days. And so London is the kind of place, I think, number one for me, language made it something that I could spend more time just wandering the byways. But there are so many cool little places that are off the beaten track. And I was editing a book of walks for another professor and a so a book of what walks oh London sure walks. Yeah, yeah so i had to walk the whole thing to make sure oh, okay. it was correct <laughs> and doing all of london not getting down under on the tube but walking walking from the earliest it was chronological so old london and the very beginning and where the tower was and as it grew and grew um it was a really fun hmm. experience that's fun. And you were in France just when you were on these trips. Yeah, I've right gone. There. I've taken sure. students to Europe. And Italy, it's for some, for, do you go just for the art or just for everything? Oh, Italy is just the best. Yeah, and I there. recently found out through DNA testing, I was adopted as a child and I found my Italian Catholic family, which kind of is fun. Is huh. it in my DNA that I love Italian art? And okay, yeah. It was the first language I actually started, second language I started learning. And so, okay. yeah. Huh. But I don't speak Italian, but I'd love to go back now with a little sense of yeah, that's fun. family history. One thing you said you wanted to do as a child was riding dolphin? Yeah. What's You mean like just riding a dolphin? Yeah, Yeah. again, because I thought that's something that realistically you can't just ride them and dive under with them. That's something, but I can't remember if it was Island of the Blue Dolphins, but again, it symbolized, I love water. I'm a water person. I loved living Uh close to the beach in California. Um, There's something, I turn on water sounds at night to sleep. And so the idea of no fear and just riding dolphins in and out, not being afraid of death, um, that you could be kind of invincible in water. 
<laughs> I'm going to read a couple, going to go back to this pamphlet here, this Ars Moriendi. And is this uh, exhibit just completely done? It's done. I, I mean, yep. it's done it here, will, but it's Yeah. It, it's yeah. Like it's a, and yeah. we, we uh, hopefully we'll see some of the works in other things. I think at the end, it's kind of fun now that you mentioned that the very last image uh-huh. uh, that yeah. was in was actually the entry image for the show. Oh, okay. The T H E E end. I like that. And it's a mirror. That's what my son said. And yeah. beautifully framed. And the suggestion metaphorically here was as you walk into the gallery, we so many times think of that end, but the end, and you're framed in it, and you're surrounded by this beautiful gold frame. And it is never the end of you. It's the beginning of a journey. It's the beginning of we don't know what. And that's what we wanted to convey at the beginning of the exhibition. But now it's at the end, but these works of art will go on. They will be used in other collections, in other exhibitions. So it's kind of has, has many meanings to it. Uh-huh. You have a couple of pet peeves, melted ice cream, soggy cereal, and slow drivers in left lane. Yep. Left lane. But you don't road rage. I don't road rage. Good for you. <laughs> Sometimes I step on it and try to get around them and look and glare at them like, what are you doing? But My daughter, Lindsay, will famously pour a bowl of cereal, the milk and the cereal, and then go get ready for the day. And <laughs> So that's your worst nightmare. Yeah. She will come back and and eat it. I mean, this... It just sits there. I even just pour just a little bit in the bottom and then do the milk and eat that and then pour more so it doesn't get soggy. Pretty OCD on this cereal. No sog. No, no sog. sog in cereal. No sog. What is, what is your go-to cereal? My go-to cereal is the new one I discovered a few months ago when my grandson was in town at Costco. And it's a nut and cherry, kind of a granola. Uh-huh. Mountain Summit, I think is the name. Okay. Morning Summit, maybe. Free advertising. Yeah. Melted ice cream, like just when it melts. Again, sitting there, it means you were not present. You <laughs> just did not get, you just waited until it was there. Now, if it were blended, in, if I take the melted ice cream, put it in a shake that has some body, I'm okay. It, then it was meant to be yeah, liquidy. But I will not eat melted. I'll just put it away. <laughs> I agree with you. Let's talk about these sections here. I'm going to read these. So in this pamphlet, there was mortality, grief, afterlife. And and there's more than that. But the grief, um, it says the the loss of a loved one is a universally stressful and emotional event. Grieving is the outward expression of your loss and is expressed in many different ways. Whether the death is expected or sudden, there is a wide range of emotions that take place. These emotions are normal and healthy and help us come to terms with our loss. The best thing we can do is to allow ourselves to grieve. So you've seen Pixar's Inside Out. Mm-hmm. And the whole struggle in that movie is joy is trying to shut up sadness. <laughs> Be quiet. <laughs> what a powerful movie. How does that relate to... What was written here? Actually, in in a very um, sincere way, I think that 
in the culture I live in, grief is, is minimized. And I see much healthier cultures where people are allowed to grieve. And we wanted to have in this exhibition a sense of you can take a moment. We had signage at the front of the exhibition. This was to be a quiet, thoughtful place because I have people approach me all the time who are grieving over one thing or another. And to be able to say, please come into this exhibition, sit, ponder, look at some of these images, the way artists have dealt with grief, some with humor, some with such extreme sadness. We have a a bronze of a grieving woman to find out that it's based on a real story where Mm. the woman was not grieving, but the woman was the one that died and her son, the artist, was grieving. Oh, wow. And so I think we need to be more respectful of the importance of grieving. And some of these, uh, you know, humor, Brian Kershiznik's death suite was um, handling these ideas of how we look at death, Uh, The one image that we have on here, you know, of a person grieving over what looks like a mummified to represent a dead body and being sensitive to other forces, other people that can touch you and help you through the grieving. I think that was one of our main reasons in here and how many of us had had recent losses. So we wanted to say grieve as long as you need to. We're not going to just determine that everything is going to be okay. Get over it. You know, it's your time is done. I love in some traditions where they wear something for a year of grieving, allow them Mm. the time and then they party. So I think grieving and learning how to do it is very important. Our last guest was Wesley Warren and he made an interesting comment that um, when you have a powerfully hopeful belief in the afterlife of being reunited with your family, that for some people that can minimize this natural grieving process because they are shrugging off the pain of right now and, well, you know, I'm going to be with that person again, so, uh, you know, I shouldn't be feeling so bad or so sad. And it made me think of the story in the New Testament of of the of Jesus who himself was going to be very soon dead but he knew he would be resurrected but even he wept with these two women when Lazarus died even though he knew he was about to raise him from the dead Uh, so that kind of spoke to me what you said yeah yeah I think that that is our role is to not say It's going to be okay. You'll be together again. And we find ourselves saying that. That sounds more and more trite to me. It's, what can I do? Can I just be there for you? Can I hold your hand? Can I put my arm around you? Do you want to just sit here quietly and be alone? But to respect that without having to, whatever we believe of an afterlife. And kind of as as a wrap-up in here, as you mentioned, the section of afterlife, I did have an experience you'd asked on my little thing. Um, uh, What some would maybe term a near-death experience. It was not this, wow, lights and powerful thing. I'd broken my arm. And I was a young mom, had a house full of little kids, stepped on a 
transformer. Remember those <laughs> on the stairs? Rode it down the stairs. Oh, my gosh. And uh, my husband at the time was out of town. A bunch of little kids gathered around and all the neighbor kids. And so my mom came and got me and took me to the emergency room just to say, wow, you've really messed up your shoulder and a radial head fracture. And they gave me a pain shot. I can't remember. You'd probably know more Percodan or something. And I flatlined. Oh, wow. And my poor mom, who was an amputee, had to ride in a wheelchair to get me to the hospital, sat there and... For a brief moment, I can't explain it scientifically. There's much more research on it now, um, spiritually, whatever. But uh, I remember just very curiously, curiouser and curiouser, as in Alice in Wonderland, I looked down and I saw them working on my body. And then they put what would have been adrenaline um, or something, and they injected me. But I remembered it was just... They were all working, and there were lights flashing, and my mother was stressed. And it was such a brief second, whether in the body or out, or some kind of medical brain um, transfer in a neurological transfer, chemical, I don't know. But at that moment, it was so peaceful for me that I'd thought many times after, um, I was not afraid at that moment. And those down there, there were professionals who were very focused. My mother, who was terrified. Um, my children were not there, so they didn't know. They didn't even know for years that that had happened to me. But I just felt at such ease. So going back to our earlier conversation, it was the very next week when I took that flight on that airplane, that mm. jet, oh, wow. and got to yeah. see the world vista and those two experiences of not knowing whether I was dead, but of being able to see it was far bigger than me or a hospital room. There was this endless vista if you got far enough above the earth. Hmm. And then this, thank you for sharing that. It's extremely personal. This last section here is called afterlife and you, and it was written when we think of our mortality, sometimes the most difficult part is not dying, but considering what happens after death. And for you, that what a kind of singular experience to, to feel that and to have a peaceful moment and to come back and tell us about that. I mean, yeah, and, and your questions here are, what do you imagine life after, how do you imagine life after death? I loved the open-endedness of this pamphlet. It was very inclusive and very, um, like I say, cross-cultural, very inclusive. And um, so that's a powerful way that you just shared that. Thank you. And thank you, because that was our hope with this, that yeah. people would be respectful of others' views and positions of different kinds of artistic expressions and that they would embrace all of this as part of the human experience. And to the final question is, why do you think it's important to look at life in retrospect? Because I've been able to see so much change in myself. And whether you go through an exhibition like this or you're examining your own life or your life or life through the the eyes of an artist, that self-awareness and a sense of being present with your own thoughts and feelings, I think that's one of the most exciting things is to say, 
I'm no longer in just the same place I was. I've, I've been very orthodox about things. I feel very liberated in some other things, and I love looking at those changes. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. Please leave a review and share this if you enjoyed it. And until next time, this is Kendall Thurman. May light and peace ever grow in your life. May your socks be dry and unholy. And may all your cinnamon rolls be slightly overdone. Bye-bye.